Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the the best science that you're going to hear for the next half hour. I'm going to say that much. I, I was going to be a bit more like grandiose, but I've walked it back a little bit. Anyway, that's us. Um, joining me as always is the wonderful Claire. Claire. Hello, Chris. How are you? Good. Um, I'm really good. And I'm hoping that you have some science that is good enough to back up my grand claim. <laughs> Oh, I absolutely do, and mostly because it isn't just me bringing the science this week. I've got a special guest, Dr. Kylie Cairns, and Kylie is a geneticist and a conservationist and works with dingoes. And I don't know if you've seen um, the new research that Kylie is lead author on, but she has been doing some incredible research looking at the purity of dingoes and wild dogs around Australia. So it's some fascinating research that sort of throws into question the the knowledge and understanding of what is, I guess, you know, how hybridised our dingo population are. And spoiler alert, there are a lot more purebred and a lot more specific sort of uh, dingo populations, but distinct dingo populations in Australia than we thought. So Kylie's going to give us the load down on what that looks like and why it's important for things like conservation and management of um, our wonderful dingo wildlife. How about you, Chris? Uh, Are you bringing the science or have you um, have you done what I've done? Well, I have. I am talking to someone else. Then. Thank you, Claire, for that suggestive Great. question. You may remember um, recently there was a very big meteor scene in North Queensland that yeah. made the news. A very bright flash fireball. I would have loved to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, I mean, we've seen all that. We've all seen the, the videos and the, the pictures and stuff. But yeah, it would be great to see it. So this is, yeah, on the 20th of May from, I think, about Mackay North, there were sightings of this particular meteor. Uh, so, yeah, this week I am talking to an expert on meteors and meteorites, uh, Dr. Ellie Sansom from Curtin University, uh, who is a geophysicist who actually manages the Desert Fireball Network, which was set up with cameras across Outback Australia to try and catch meteors and then try and track where they land so that we can retrieve them. Yeah. They did not catch this on their cameras, but um, she's done some calculations to see that this is one of the, the biggest meteors that have been seen in Australia for like many, many decades. And wow. uh, yeah, and what's involved in trying to retrieve some of these rocks that fall from the sky. <laughs> yep. So we have a couple of fantastic interviewees coming up on the show. So stay with us and fill your science ear holes. So Australian dingoes are iconic in our environment as an apex predator. They are our own native dog, but over time we've seen conservation and management decisions about the dingo be informed by an understanding that 
dingoes breed with wild dogs and create hybrid animals. But new genetic research published this week throws this assumption out the window. And to talk us through this research, we are joined by the lead author, Dr. Kylie Cairns, Research Fellow at the University of New South Wales. Kylie, welcome to Lost in Science. Oh, thanks for having me. What makes a dingo a dingo? Well, so dingoes have been in Australia for thousands of years, uh, anywhere from 5,000 to 11,000 years. Uh, and they've been isolated from domestic dogs for that time period. So I guess what makes dingoes special is their evolutionary, uh, you know, history and isolation in Australia. Uh, and domestic dogs are different because they've been shaped by humans into the perfect pet uh, through artificial selection or selective breeding. They are two distinct species, but they can interbreed. Well, they're two distinct lineages. Some people think they're different species. Some people Mm -hmm. don't. I'm on the camp of they're distinct from dogs, so they should have their own species name, can be considered different, but that's quite controversial. They can definitely interbreed, but whilst a lot of people would think that species can't interbreed, a lot of them actually can. So... Wolves and coyotes can interbreed, Mm. jackals can interbreed, or basically a lot of the canids can interbreed and it sort of seems to be something unusual maybe about them that they are able to reproduce and create fertile offspring unlike a lot of other sort of species that can't do that. As I said in the introduction, Kylie, you're the lead author of new research that does challenge a lot of current assumptions about how much dogs and dingoes do interbreed. What led you to conduct this research on the dingo population? Well, I've always been interested in dingoes. I've been studying dingoes since I started doing, uh, you know, tertiary education, really. Uh, I did my PhD on them. And I came back to doing academic research after taking some time off. And I was sort of struck by the conversation around wild dogs and how I was seeing all these pictures of wild dogs that trappers were taking and they all just look like dingoes. There's no physical evidence that they seem to have dog ancestry in them. And I know that we've been using this um, older type of DNA testing. In fact, I used to run that type of DNA testing at UNSW. And I thought it would be really interesting to apply more updated types of DNA methods to this sort of question like they've done in other um, species around the world to see if you know maybe there's more dog ancestry in the dingo population um, maybe there's less and look at whether or not there's different types of dingoes and whether that's been having an impact on our testing so that was why we did it basically and I guess the follow-on question for that was How did you do it? I mean, obviously, you must have um, gone out and found a lot of dingoes. Well, I was lucky that I didn't have to go out and find them. Most I had a lovely community of uh, volunteers and private citizens and wildlife managers and dog trappers and landholders and government agencies who sort of answered a call out or, a you know, from me saying, could people give me samples? Um, I already had a network because I'd obviously done my PhD in studying dingoes. But, um, yeah, and then it sort of just went from there. Like people 
got in touch with me and told me they had some or I might contact people on social media and then they would send them to me. And because I'd worked in a DNA sequencing lab already, I knew the sorts of platforms that I could use. Uh, and I chose this one, it's called a SNP chip. And basically what it does is it looks at hundreds of thousands of DNA markers or DNA sites along the genome. And you get the same markers for each animal at this, you know, every time you do it. So it's really good because you can build this database of information that you can compare between labs and um you know every time you do it you're going to get the same result or you should get very close to the same result and then we put the we put all the data into the into the programs uh to to analyze them and and instead of finding a lot of dog ancestry we found a lot of dingo ancestry so it was quite a surprise right so from all of the samples you found a lot of dingo ancestry what's the significance of that Previous studies based on uh, older DNA testing technologies had suggested that there were very few pure dingoes remaining in parts of Australia, particularly New South Wales and Victoria. As little as 1% of the population were believed to be pure dingoes. Instead, what they thought was present was basically animals that they called wild dogs that were a mix, a genetic mix between dingoes and dogs. So somewhere between, you know, could be any amount of dingo in them. Um, a lot of people believe that there was more dog than dingo, um, even though that wasn't really what the DNA testing showed. But anyway, uh, so but what we found is that in areas where we had thought there were no dingoes left or very few, we found like a lot. So in Victoria, where it had previously said one to four percent or something like that, we found eighty-eight percent of our samples were pure dingoes. So that wow. was like a like a huge difference. And similarly in New South Wales, where it was something like twenty-five percent were believed to be pure, we found sixty-two percent were pure. Wow. So huge, huge differences. And the other thing that's really interesting is looking at the animals that are falling between pure dingoes and uh, dogs or between hybrids. And what we noticed is that there were less animals in the middle and more animals closer to the dingo side of the spectrum. Um, and that indicates that the the dingoes are breeding back to each other as opposed mm. to breeding with other hybrids or breeding with dogs. That's quite interesting because it suggests that there's some sort of behaviour or barrier uh, maybe selecting for more dingoiness in the population. Don't know, but it's pretty cool. Did you see any other sort of geographical differences? Yeah, so at the moment, I mean, we only have like 400 dingo samples that we've looked at, and I think we'll need to go back and do more intensive sampling to look at this. But we found four different uh, geographic populations. So we called them West, East, South, and Big Desert. So very creative with those names. You know, one was found broadly in northern, central and western Australia. So that's the west one. Um, Then we found one along the eastern seaboard of Australia in New South Wales and um, southern Queensland. And then we found a south one, which was sort of uh, southern New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria. And we found this really weird, interesting population that we called Big Desert because that's the first place we found it, um, which is sort of in western Victoria and Narcat, so uh, southern South Australia, that sort of area. 
Uh, and it's really interesting because we knew there was some geographic variation in dingoes from some of my earlier work, um, but we didn't realise there was as much as apparently is. And you were talking about the tool that you use, the new genetic tool that's sort of updated from the 90s and sort of the genetic capabilities that we had then. Can you talk to us a bit more about what it is, how reliable and how accurate it is? So just to give an idea of the scale of the difference in the two technologies, the method that we were using before now looked at 23 different DNA markers and uh, the one that I'm using now, we used 195,000 DNA markers. So a huge difference. It basically, besides that, the actual analysis technique's not that much different. Um, You use pretty similar like software programs for modeling, but it's really about the scale of the information that you're getting uh, and the fact that it's a bit less labor intensive to gather it. So I can gather all of those 195,000 markers at the same time using like it's just called a snip chip (laughs) Um, compared to the other one which was much more labor intensive to do in the lab. In terms of what that means for the DNA testing it means that the result is much more robust it's much more accurate you just have so much more information about each animal that your estimates and modeling is much more you know reliable and accurate. Um, And you can build confidence intervals around that as well. You've got so much more data. Exactly. So much more data and you can account for the different types of variation that might be being seen in the data. So, for example, the geographic variation within dingoes, but also the variation between dingoes and dogs. It's like the difference between using a magnifying glass and a microscope. The two different methods, I guess, the older genetic testing and the new genetic testing, were you able to do any comparisons with the current samples that you have? Yes, we did. So we had 100 animals that we had tested on both methods, and it was really interesting to compare the results, Um, but a bit concerning for our knowledge about dingoes. So when we compared the results um, for this set of dingoes, we found that the old method frequently misidentified pure dingoes as being hybrids. And so what that really is telling us is that all of this data that we've collected over the last 20 years doing DNA tests of, you know, over 8,000 samples across the country, um, those results are not reliable and they're not accurate. And so it means that we need to go back and we need to redo our genetic surveys using up-to-date methods because, Um, The previous method suggested there was a lot of hybrids because it was misidentifying pure dingoes as hybrids. What do your findings, do you think, mean for updating, I guess, you know, conservation efforts relating to dingoes, updating policies or management? Yeah, so what it suggests to us is that uh, in the wild, there's very there seems to be very few um, animals that have little dog, dingo ancestry, uh, and there's very few feral dogs uh, as well. Uh, and so that means, in my opinion, we need to be adjusting our policy and legislation to make sure that we're being clear about the animals that are being targeted through management. Uh, and and the best way to do that would be to just change the names so instead of using the word wild dog in legislation we can use the word dingo and feral dog to refer to the different animals and I think that that's important because it also means that we are acknowledging that dingoes are a native animal which they are uh, compared to feral dogs which are an invasive feral animal 
so I think that's really important that 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 happens. Whether or not it will happen remains to be seen, though. By management, are we talking, I mean, one of the biggest types of management of, you know, quote-unquote wild dogs is 1080 baiting. So is that conversation happening? I don't know if it's happening yet. I think I'm hoping that this research will lead to a broader conversation about how we are balancing the conservation and management of dingoes across, you know, New South Wales and basically all of the states. Uh, At the moment, there are, particularly in New South Wales, extensive 1080 aerial baiting programs being rolled out across national parks. Uh, And I think a lot of people aren't aware of that because it's called wild dog baiting. Mm. Uh, And also, generally, it's said that they only bait the boundaries of the parks but that's not actually true. (laughs) But if you change that language and you say, you know, we're talking about aerial baiting dingoes, I think that the general community would have a different opinion about whether or not they support that. And I think that it would mean that there's more transparent discussion about what's happening. Just in a nutshell, why is it so important to have dingoes present in the environment? Yeah, so... Dingoes have basically adapted to the Australian environment and they now fulfil the role of the top land-based predator. That means they're involved in biodiversity regulation, uh, which is something like, you know, regulating large herbivores that has impacts on the types of vegetation, which then flows on to um, the, you know, benefits for small small marsupials, birds, reptiles, that sort of thing. Uh, Dingoes can also have a role in suppressing foxes and cats and keeping them out of the environment or at least suppressing their numbers to a lower level. They probably don't remove them entirely, uh, but they definitely have an impact in many places in Australia. Where to next for your research? So I'm still collecting samples. (laughs) I'm still caring, like continuing the research, but particularly trying to focus in areas where I don't have samples or building uh, more samples in areas where we think that we might need more information. I'm also collaborating with people overseas. I'm involved in an ancient DNA project, hopefully looking at the origins of dingoes compared to wolves and ancient dogs. I'm involved in looking at um, the dogs that are found in Papua New Guinea to see how they might be related to dingoes. We know that the uh, highland wild dog or New Guinea singing dog that's found up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea is like the dingo's cousin, but we don't know how many there are. And so we've been, I've been working with a PhD student there who is collecting samples from local villages. So we're going to be working on that. And I'm also doing a bit of work on the poo of dingoes and foxes to find out more about what those predators are eating in the in the environment uh, using DNA. So we get the poo and then we DNA test it to see what they've been eating. Well, Kylie, thank you so much for chatting with us today about dingoes and dog dingoes and dogs uh, and everything in between and best of luck with the next stages of research we cannot wait to hear what happens um and we'll keep updated um from you hopefully in the future yeah thank you very much
listening to Lost in Science. Uh, my name's Chris, and I'm talking about the spectacular meteor or fireball that was seen in North Queensland on the 20th of May this year. Now, to help us make sense of it, I have on the line geophysicist Dr. Ellie Sansom from Curtin University. Now, she manages the awesomely named Desert Fireball Network, which tracks meteors and meteorites across Australia. Uh, Ellie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, like I said, we're talking about this big event that happened uh, recently in North Queensland. What do we know about this particular meteor? So this was an awesome event. This was the biggest event we have recorded over Australia in the last about 30 years since um, we've basically been observing the whole planet for these really, really big explosions from space rocks. Uh, So I guess... Bringing you back to what we normally typically see, uh, I run the project, the, the Desert Fireball Network, and we have cameras all the way across, unfortunately, mostly the southern part of Australia, taking pictures all night, every night, trying to capture these really, really bright shooting stars. And sometimes the, they're actually big enough that they might leave a meteorite on the ground. And meteorites are amazing samples of early solar system history. It can help us figure out how it it formed and, and evolved and possibly even a little bit about the planet formation and a bit about our own planet Earth and maybe where the water and possibly even life might have come from. Um, but most of these these meteorites that are around the world, we, we don't know where in the solar system they, they've come to us from. We just know they're from outer space, uh, but we're not quite sure, sure whereabouts. And uh, we like this analogy of, well, if you give a geologist a, a bucket of rocks and say, tell us about... Um, volcanoes or how plate tectonics works or uh, geomagnetism and all these different concepts that we know about our own earth we can't do that from a bucket of rocks we need to know where on earth they got picked up from and we need to know that spatial context and we don't have that for pretty much all of there's about 70,000 meteorites that people have collected around the world and we have pretty much no there's a less than there's around 50 of them that we have orbits for so where did they come from before they hit the earth and the Desert Fireball Network in Australia has about 25% of those now. So we are picking up meteorites and giving them that spatial context by find, being able to calculate their orbits, which is amazing and fascinating on its own, but obviously doesn't really work so much for this, this event. It was uh, way beyond our network of cameras. Uh, we, there are d- other ways, though, that we can get an idea of how it came through our atmosphere. And the, the one that I was referring to and how we know it was the, the biggest one over Australia it's a really cool uh, set of satellites, basically, that are out. They're run by uh, the U.S. government, and they're looking for nuclear blast or missile launches. Uh, but they also see these natural objects hitting our atmosphere, and the explosion and the energy of them exploding in our atmosphere. And this one uh, was recorded uh, around seven kilotons of TNT exploding, so half the size of a Hiroshima bomb in our atmosphere, just above Australia. Uh, and so we can calculate, use that to work out that it was something that was around um, almost 80,000 kilos uh, object. So uh, wow. about three and a half meters across, maybe about the size of a, of a caravan or a minibus, but weigh, weighing a, obviously a lot, lot more than that and um, coming through our atmosphere. So um, unfortunately, we don't have the really nice, precise camera data that we would have with our own network, but there is obviously casual footage that people have been just, uh, people were recording with their, their mobile phones, there's security cameras, there's some dash cams, and we can kind of try and use those to piece together a little bit about how that might have come through our atmosphere. 
Okay, so in terms of size, I want to look at that for a second. So it's hard to get an idea. I mean, it sounds pretty big, especially if you give you the, the weight of it. But how does this compare to other events people might be familiar with? And the first one that springs to mind is the Chelyabinsk meteor back in 2013. That's 10 years ago now, I just realized that. Um, so how does this compare to something like that? So the Chelyabinsk event um, over Russia back in 2013 is the biggest event this planet has, has ever seen. Um, and it's really interesting, actually, because these, these rocks are floating around in, in outer space. They're the remnants and leftovers of our solar system formation that didn't quite make it into planets. And the ones that are a kilometre kilometer size across, the massive ones that would have was caused dinosaur extinction or mass civilization ending events, uh, we know where about 98% of those are. We can, we've got track of those, and um, we're, we're all good there. Uh, but the ones that are... Uh, are smaller than that. And when we get to about Chelyabinsk size, which is about maybe 10 to 20, I think it's closer to 20 meters across uh, in diameter, um, those are, we know where less than about 2% of those objects are. Things that are around um, 10 meters across, um, they, uh, we expect them to be once every 50 years, something like that. Um, but the uncertainty on those, because we know where so few of them are, could be as uh, close as every 15 or as, um, as infrequent as every 500 years. And that uncertainty, I guess, in terms of uh, the whole solar system and geology is, seems like a nice, is a small, small number. But for us humans, that's quite a big uncertainty. And the Chelyabinsk event came through and the shockwave from it, if you remember, shattered windows created a huge amount of damage and a lot of people ended up in hospital. No one actually died, but it was, um, it was still quite, quite a big event. And yeah, it's not civilization ending, but it's still quite, um, quite a, a big problem. And for, for planetary defense, that's where we, there's a big unknown or a black hole in our, in our understanding. So this event was um, so about a third of the size of, uh, in terms of uh, the diameter of the body that came in, about a third of the size of that one. Um, but the shockwave from it was still was still quite powerful. It didn't smash windows, it, and, but it still probably had the capability of, of rattling them. And there were reports that some windows got got cracked or broken. And I, at the beginning, we kind of were a bit weren't quite sure whether that was going to be the case. But once now we can see the amount of energy that that uh, deposited in our atmosphere, or the the size of that explosion, we could definitely say that that. Those could, that could have been possible, especially directly underneath the fireball itself. Great. Wow. And that's, I hadn't heard of that. That's, um, that is impressive to hear. Now, when you're talking about the, I guess, the brightness or the size of the explosion, does it make a difference what the actual thing is made out of? Um, not necessarily. The, I guess the brightness, yes. The, the energy of the explosion is very much related to actually the total mass of the object and uh, the speed that it comes in at. It's actually um, a very simple um, energy times velocity, uh, energy is just mass times velocity squared. So it's actually one of those fundamental, very basic equations that you've got, but here it is, you can see it applied in, in the real world that something that's heavier, it could be something that's um, uh, maybe an iron body would have been smaller, uh, but it would have had the same mass as something that's really fluffy and light uh, and, and bigger, um, as, uh, and uh, I guess larger in, in diameter. So we, we're assuming this one's 
um, a, a standard space rock um, that's one of the most common types that, that hits our atmosphere. And that's how we're kind of estimating that um, size or how that it's about a caravan size is just using that a density of what we'd expect is most typical. Um, the, the light, though, is actually an interesting one because the brightness is usually when we see fireballs with a desert fireball network, about 98% of what we're seeing is the atmosphere burning, or 95 to 98%. And that, uh, so when you're looking at a shooting star or a fireball, or actually, let's just talk about shooting stars for a moment, the ones that you see in a meteor shower, they, they're, they're really quick, they're just enough to go, oh, look at that, but you're too, too slow, your mates missed it. Uh, those are actually formed by things that are really, really small, about the size of a grain of sand. Um, and that brightness that you're seeing is actually just them hitting the atmosphere with at such a speed that it's making the atmosphere burn and as we get larger there's obviously there's still a, there is a component of that that is actually the uh, melting of the rock itself uh, but also you've still got quite a lot of the atmosphere but in terms of what they're made of when something really strong hits the atmosphere it's going to be quite consistent you wouldn't see it um, making an explosion quite quite that big um, and something light and fluffy, when that explodes, you kind of actually get so many different little pieces of rock that you have what we call like an increased um, apparent surface area. And that increased apparent surface area makes things look a lot, lot brighter uh, than oh, something cool. that might have been just one big chunk. So uh, sometimes the, the brighter it is, it actually means that it's wasn't, it was less strong to begin with. Um, but in terms of actually getting an idea of what it might be made of, we can we would usually use the height at which it exploded because the height that these things um, have their big explosion events uh, is basically the, the point in, when, in which that rock has hit a part of the atmosphere that's just too dense for it to keep itself held together. And we can uh, model the density of the atmosphere at that, at that height. Uh, and from that, we can kind of get an idea, well, we know what the density is of the atmosphere, we should therefore be able to figure out, based on the speed uh, of the object, how um, how strong that would need to be to suddenly break up um, at that point in the atmosphere. So that's something we can we can use. Um, the data that we have for this one isn't really good enough to to get a really good idea, but it is uh, fairly typical kind of um, heights that we're looking at. Um, and these things usually the ones that we look at with the desert fireball network that are quite a bit smaller. Um, when they're coming through and they um, they break up and they carry on going, that's when we're kind of more, we, th we think there might be meteorites that might be on the ground. Um, and things that burn, they stop burning usually at around 35 kilometers altitude. So your usual space rock that might survive an atmosphere will at least go to about 35 kilometers altitude. But then they've actually slowed down enough that they stop, the atmosphere stops burning and they become, it goes it goes dark, but there might still be a rock there at the end of it. And we call that second part of the flight a, a dark flight phase. So you have the bright flight, which is really nice and luminous, and you can see that from, from hundreds of kilometers away. And then as soon as it slows down enough, it'll stop burning and it can drop rocks at the end. So anything that goes down below 35 kilometers, we, we get excited about. Um, this one was uh, supposedly exploded at around 38 uh, sorry, 28 kilometers up. So we know that was definitely, there's going to be lots of pieces on the ground from that one. And some of the video actually shows that there was still some light afterwards. So some of, some pieces were still going fast enough after that explosion um, that there might actually be a few 
big pieces still on the ground. So, um, yeah, pretty exciting event. So much going on. Great. <laughs> Can I just clarify one thing? Um, when you talk about the explosion and it's right to the, the kinetic energy of the the rock hitting the atmosphere, so is that all it is? It's It's basically when a rock is brought to a stop by the density of the atmosphere and just breaks up as an explosion. Yeah, basically. So obviously high up in the atmosphere, the uh, is not super dense. So it's still um, still kind of almost like hitting a brick wall, <laughs> but uh, it's it make, the atmosphere is still forgiving. It can still pass through the atmosphere because it has an internal strength uh, that keeps it, keeps it together in that thin atmosphere. But as soon as the atmosphere starts getting thicker and thicker and it gets to a point where, you know what, I'm going too fast to be able to go through this dense atmosphere, it, it just the internal strength is no longer capable of holding, um, holding it together and it, and it breaks up. And that's when you get the big bright flares because that increased surface area um, just means there's more, more pieces there to be burning. Great. So um, what are the chances of finding... Um, some of these pieces and how is that how how will you go about that or other people go about that yeah um i think there's a very good chance of finding it at least one day um the when we triangulate or use our camera data to uh, find out where these things might have landed on the ground uh, usually we can narrow it down to around a around a one square kilometer search area which we can um we used to have about six, six or seven people go out for 10 days and search that kind of an area completely. Now we are starting to use drones as well, which kind of brings that down a little bit in terms of time. Um, but this area, because we don't really know where it ended, uh, although we have that fantastic data from, from the satellites, there's still a really big uncertainty on the ground. And we're talking probably about... 15 to 20 kilometers by 15 to 20 kilometers kind of an area so uh it's a it's a big area to get out searching and i think if uh, people are out mustering around the area and spot something then that's that's going to be amazing we are going to try and send a team out in a couple of weeks um to to see if they can uh, find anything with the drone um but i think it's going to be a, a definitely still a, a component of luck to it on this one Great. And what, what sort of things would you hope to learn from uh, a meteorite like this? That's a really good question, especially when we don't have a particularly good orbit. Um, is It's still one of those larger events that hits the planet. And like Chelyabinsk, the, the geochemistry of the Chelyabinsk meteorite was, um, was a little bit unusual. So maybe looking at what this one's made of, is this actually a, a, the most common type of meteorite that's hitting us? Or is this a more unusual type? And if we're starting to look at well, what might be similar or any sort of patterns that we can see across the, the larger objects, uh, again, that might help us start piecing together a bit more of an understanding and filling in that knowledge gap of uh, these larger events and what's going to be the risk and the hazard for, from them in the future. Fantastic. Well, look, it sounds like there is yeah, a lot to find out, and I really hope you, you eventually get the data that you need. Yeah, thank you. It's going to be. Uh, I think what's going to be also quite exciting about the stream field on the is the stream field on the ground itself, because when we pick up, it's not going to be just one meteorite like we we're usually searching for. It's going to be um, hundreds of these little pieces all over the place. And actually mapping where every single piece is and weighing them is going to actually help us get an idea of. Um, uh, not only the total mass, but how this thing actually broke up in our atmosphere. And it might even be able to tell us, we have done it in the past, 
where this strewn field on the ground, uh, you actually have almost two sections of it and you can st start actually backtracking and figuring out the altitude that that must have split up at um, oh, to be able to cause that spread on the ground. So the strewn field, not just, yeah, one meteorite would be fantastic, but I think the strewn field itself and locating where those different pieces are uh, is going to be really valuable as well. Great. Well, like I said, good luck with that. Um, yeah, I look forward to hearing hearing the results. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us again. That was Dr. Ellie Sansom from Curtin University and the Desert Fireball Network. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.